welcome to episode 76 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. In today's episode, we'll be discussing illustration, yes or no. <laughs> uh, and in the second half, we'll be looking at two similarly titled, but otherwise not particularly similar novels, Miss Hargraves by Frank Baker and Miss Boston and Miss Hargreaves by Rachel Malik. Um, and to distinguish them, I think we can stick with Hargraves for one novel and Hargreaves for the other, and hopefully that will help us through. I was wondering about that. I thought, are you going to insist that they're the same? I don't know. No, but because, I mean, I still feel like Hargreaves is the normal way to pronounce it, but <laughs> not in Miss Hargreaves or is an author's note to that effect. Yes. Um, but before all of that, Rachel, how are you? What are you up to? What are you reading? Um, I'm very well, thank you. My summer holidays are, are sadly drawing to a close. I'm not oh, going to get much sympathy from anyone, it's though, because it has been... eight months. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> it's merely been seven weeks, Simon. <laughs> But which has, you know, gone so quickly. I mean, I've always felt, Phil, I sound ancient when I say that, but it's true. When you're having a good time, it just goes, doesn't it? Um, but I've had a lovely time. I've been all over. I've been to Devon. I've been twice, actually. I've just come back from there. I had another week there just last week. Um, and I mean, to be fair, my sister does have a place there. So, uh, I, you know, it's easy. Um, and I've been to America for three weeks. So I went to Washington and New York. Stay with friends, which was lovely. And I was in Devon the week before I went there, which with another friend, which was which was wonderful. We had such a good time because the weather was gorgeous. This past week in Devon was a bit of a washout, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> Classic English summer. Um, and it's pouring with rain in London at the moment, in case anyone's interested. So that's August for you here. Um, but I had a lovely time. I bought quite a few books, actually. Oh, good to hear it. Yeah, I did. Um, Washington, D.C. had a surprising number of good second-hand bookshops that I didn't know about before. Oh, um, gosh, there's, yeah, there's loads yeah. of great ones there. Yeah, so, well, actually, I got a couple of, of books in, three books, actually, in Annapolis. My friends took me there for the day. Um, I believe I'm right in saying it's the capital of Maryland. Any American listeners, feel free to correct me if I've got that wrong. Um, and it's a very a, a charming red brick you know a bit like philadelphia really city um really pretty unfortunately the day we were there it was 40 degrees so it, yeah i mean it was tough um taking refuge in an air-conditioned bookshop was therefore obviously the only course of action <laughs> well yes um, could you do? well quite and so i had a lovely time browsing the shelves it was a great selection and it was three for two so again oh, what could i do <laughs> um and i got I actually got a another Wallace Stegner novel. I, I think did I get you to read Crossing to Safety? You did. I, I did. It, yes. Yeah. So I, I I never find his books in England at all, apart from obviously reprints. Um, so I found uh, a later book of his, A Shooting Star, in a first edition that was cheap. So I thought fantastic. Unfortunately, when I googled it after I bought it, it seems to not be his greatest novel. But I mean, I, anything by him must yes. be good. So, um, and I got a really lovely copy of First Did the Wind for France oh, by Hitchie Bates. And then I found, um, when I was living in New York many moons ago, a very lovely lady whose name I can't remember. And if you're listening, please do tell me if it was you. Sent me a lovely care package that was filled with books and tea and lovely things. Oh, wow. Um, so welcome me to America. It was the kindest thing. She was a follower of my blog. I want to say her name was Heather, but I might have got that wrong. 
And she sent me a book called Dark Hester by Anne Douglas Sedgwick, which was a wonderful 1920s novel. And I'd never seen anything else by, by her since. Um, and then in the shop, one of the first books that jumped off the shelf at me was another book by her called The Old Countess. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll get that. And, um, I, so I bought it and it reminded me of that lovely, um, package that I got sent. And uh-huh. I would love to say thank you again to that person. And I hope they're listening so they, they hear that. Um, what else did I buy book-wise? Let me think. I bought, oh, I bought a really good book actually that I read and then left in New York for my friend to read. It's a new book called mm. A Terrible Country by an American writer called Keith Gesson. Um, it's about a, an American Russian, um, teen, like, uh, someone in their early twenties who goes back to Russia after having lived in America for, for their whole life and comparing what it's like to live in a country that you've grown up being told is awful mm. and that, that your parents never want to go back to. And it's, he has to go back to look after his grandmother who still lives in Moscow. And it was just, I just found it really fascinating. And it was quite, um, I'm obsessed with Russia, as some people might know. Um, I found it really interesting to read about a modern perception of it. So, And it was just a really good book, actually. So I recommend that a lot. Um, and I can't think what else I bought. Oh, I bought a biography of Sylvia Plath because I need to read it for school. Okay. I mean, you know, other stuff like that. But those three books I got in Washington, I was really pleased with. I haven't obviously read any of them yet, but you know, I'll, I'll get around to it at some point. That's me blaring on. You tell us <laughs> about you. Well, yes, that sounds good. And I hope you went to Capitol Hill Books, which I love. Yes, I did. No, what did I buy in Capitol Hill Books? I did. I bought a book in there. It was a really good find. Oh, yeah, I bought a Virginia Woolf, um, a lovely... Modern, you know those modern library editions with mm. the old dust jackets. I got a copy of To the Lighthouse. I was going to buy a copy of A Room of One's Own that looked like a first edition with a dust jacket oh. for a very cheap price. And I thought, oh. And then I looked further, and while the book itself was a first printing, the dust jacket was from a later edition, which was a bit cheap. Scandal. So I didn't get it, because I thought, well, that's not really worth the money. What makes it worth the money is the dust jacket, so... A little bit of literary sleuthing there. <laughs> but it was a lovely shop, very lovely shop, and the owner it's... was charming. Yes, I think it's changed since I went there, and it's now community-owned or something. Maybe that's not right, but um, <laughs> but the the old man who used to run it has has gone, I think. Oh, well, he, a very old man was there when oh. I was there. In which case, I could be wrong. Sorry, and there was a man. hilarious display at the front where they had the last Harry Potter book. And they'd put like a, a sticker on the front saying, plot spoiler, Ron dies. And I thought, oh, how funny. <laughs> um, but it was, no, it was lovely. And the guy was like, yo, you got yourself some good stuff here. And I thought I must have bought something else. I can't remember. Um, but I obviously bought so much. I can't remember. What it was. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Cause yeah, you're I know. quite, quite, quite um, astemious with your book buying. Uh, I've brought you to the dark side. Um, so I spent today in Wiltshire at Wilton House. Um, I was meeting up with someone from my online book group, it, oh. which was lovely. It's supposed to be a, a, a large group of us, but um, other people couldn't make it in the end. So it was just the two of us. But um, there was an exhibition of Cecil Beaton ph- photography that was lovely. Oh, wow. Um, and it's also a place where Edith Olivier has spent much time. She was mayor of Wilton at one point. Oh. Um, and we went on a sleuthing thing afterwards to find her house, which is not signposted, nor is it particularly accessible. We had to walk down a quite busy road, uh, side of a busy road, and then just sort of peer over a very tall gate <laughs> in order to find it. Um, 
But we did also find her grave. We went to find that, which very sadly is... It's a wooden cross, is basically the only thing there, but one side of it has fallen off, and you can't can barely make out her name, but we Hello. we found it. We did our bit. So, yeah, it was the wooden house is beautiful. I recommend that, and if you can get there before the exhibition ends, no idea when that is, uh, I'd recommend it. It's, that's done really well, and there's lots of... Um, names from the 20s that you'd recognize posted uh, in those photographs he took okay um and you may or may not know rachel and lister that august is women in translation month every year well um and i can't remember who organizes that even though i said that a while ago and karen told me and i still can't remember but someone great organizes that and so i am reading a biography of tf jensen um by Hmm. Tiula Kayalanain. Yeah, no. Kayalanain. <laughs> Tiula Kay- yeah. Someone whose name I will put, I'm really sorry, to Tiula. It was translated by, I should say that since we're doing talk, by David McDuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have previously read a biography of Tevia Janssen by Bol Weston, uh, about four or five years ago, and I thought it's been long enough that I've probably forgotten enough details of her life that I can read another biography and I quite like the women in translation idea that I'm reading a, a woman in translation about a woman I've read in translation yeah um although it's a great book mm, see I don't I'm I'm quite enjoying it but I think Bo Weston's is much better so far oh well obviously I haven't read the other one but I really like this one yeah I think my problem with it is that it's I find it weirdly compartmentalised where it's got, you know, a section on her love life and then a section on her art and then a section on the movements. And what I liked about Belle Weston is that she, she managed to bring them all together in a sort of more coherent way than this one is. Oh, yeah. right. But I'm still enjoying it. And I was correct. I've forgotten every single detail about Janssen's life. So it's, it's like it's all fresh and new to me. Oh. Yeah. And oh. the book is beautiful. Isn't it? That's the thing. Possibly the most beautiful book I own. <laughs> so, um... And I need to get on and finish it before August is over. Yes. Wow. Okay, right. <laughs> what, a, what a muted response. Um, so the first topic was something that we decided not very long ago while I was messaging back and forth, um, <laughs> which is, and links in fact to Jensen quite nicely, uh, illustration, yes or no. And this is quite a wide topic, I guess, because there are different types of illustration. But you said in your reply that you have opinions Yes. <laughs> um, this comes as no surprise to anyone who's listened to the podcast before. <laughs> but uh, start with one of them. Well, I just love illustrations. And um, as a child, I absolutely adored reading books with illustrations in them. I think they add another dimension to a text. Um, because what I love about illustrations is that most of the time, they're not provided by the author themselves. So you've got an interpretation from the author in the language and then you've got the interpretation of the illustrator through the way that they've decided the characters look and what have you. Um, I mean, obviously, there is normally a dialogue between the two where there'd probably be some level of approval. Um, but I, I love the fact that you've, you've got the words and then you can look at the pictures and it kind of forms, I think, as a child when you're reading a children's book, it kind of forms your opinion. The illustrations help to form your opinion of what it's like, of what the place is like or the people, the, the characters are like. And um, 
you know, one of my most vivid memories of, as a child is of reading Enid Blyton books and the illustrations of those um, and that the colourful dust jackets and all that kind of thing. And my, I used to love the original illustrations of Victorian children's books, the beautiful watercolours. And um, so mm. I, I really like that dialogue between image and imagination and words and sometimes I don't agree with what the illustrations are depicting I don't think a character looks that way or whatever but I I just love the fact that you can see it come to life on the page in front of you and I think it's a shame actually that more adult books aren't illustrated there seems to be an attitude that illustrations are just for children and I, I don't think that's necessarily true or helpful. Well I think a way in that is in in a way in which that is really changing is graphic novels, which yes. have become so much more popular in the past five to ten years, I guess. Um, I can't remember if we've talked about graphic novels before or not. But I don't do think you, we have. Um, so I have. I, I like graphic novels. I got into them a little while ago, but I'm very opinionated about what's what sort of graphic novel I'll read. So right. um, anything that looks like a comic book, you know, superhero type illustration doesn't interests me it just puts me off um the graphic novelist i really love is called brecht evans uh, a belgian uh, graphic novelist He's, and um he does everything in watercolors and these lovely sort of jewel colors i guess and they're just really beautiful images and i think yeah i, I love a graphic novel if it's if it doesn't feel like it's a cartoon or if it's not in stark colors i want it to look like a beautiful sort of post-impressionist painting, almost, I guess. Um, and, yeah, um, he's written three that I think of called uh, The Making of the Panther and something else, The Wrong Place, that's it. And all of them are just beautiful works of art and also really interesting and unusual storytelling. So those are those I love. Other things I've had less good luck with, I think. Um, I recently read one about Hannah Arendt and just the um the standard of the illustration wasn't particularly good and that was that right. put me off as if you could see that it had been done relatively quickly because the, the best ones you look at and think my gosh each frame of this must have taken ages I don't know how they've done it all and someone like you know Raymond Briggs was brilliant at that his memoir of his parents Ethel and Ernest is brilliant but this one yeah felt much more like it had been done in haste um do you read graphic novels I don't as a as a rule, no. I mean I've I've read Persepolis um mm. for academic reasons and I don't do you know what? I don't love I didn't love it. Um I found it quite difficult to read because unlike an illustration in a book, the illustration doesn't necessarily form part of the story. Whereas in a graphic novel it the pictures really are the story. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to read the picture as well as the text and I found that quite jarring. Um, and also I think perhaps because I didn't really know what I was looking for, um, I didn't know how much I should be looking at the pictures, how much was being communicated in the pictures. I think this is the first one I'd read and I don't really know much about graphic novels or how they work. Um, and I want to do some more reading into that actually. Um, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I found it a bit of a, an odd experience and I, I found it quite tiring actually because I felt like my eyes never knew where to focus or. True. You sort of, um, because there's not many words on the, each page, you mm. kind of want to go quickly, but also then you want to linger and, and look as... Yeah, you know, you, I, I think but, it's easy to to fall into that trap of thinking, oh, well, I, I can just skim it. And actually, you, you can't, because there's so much to take in. 
Yeah, definitely. It certainly there isn't the best ones. Yeah. Um, maybe we should do one sometime. But yeah, I, 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 for a bit, I was after the first Project Evans, which I think someone just sent me as a review copy, and I thought, oh, why not? I got quite into hunting for them, but I found relatively few that I wanted to read because it definitely seems like the comic book style um, mm. predominates, at least in the library, which is where I was looking. And I did go to Gosh, which is a, a graphic novel bookshop in London, oh. um, which I can't remember which part of London it's in, but it's really interesting shop, and there's lots of all sorts of styles and things but um yes did not find any that i particularly wanted to buy that but i'd like to go back again hmm. Hmm. um something you mentioned about you mentioned about um whether or not it matches up with what you see leads me to something that i i talked about on my blog a few years ago and i can't remember if i've talked about on the podcast or not which is about whether or not people see the book unfolding whilst they're reading it um, and it was sort of a confession moment where I said that I never see anything in a book. I don't picture any characters. I don't. Yes, we talked about we this. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and it was it was wonderfully um, sort of cathartic when other people agreed that they didn't because often people are just horrified. <laughs> you might imagine that I'm not enjoying books at all if I'm not seeing a film unfold in front of my eyes. Um, and Oliver Sacks' book, The Mind's Eye, was very comforting when I realised that. Other people, like Oliver Sacks, experience the same thing of not not having a visual imagination whilst very much enjoying visual things. And so that was one of the things that I wondered if um, people who do see books or see characters um, would have an issue with illustration. Because for me, the illustration has got nothing to compete with. I'm never going to think that's not how I imagined the house, unless it obviously contradicts a description in the book. Um, you know, if it's three stories and it should be a bungalow or something. But... Um, yeah, I, I, it's, there's certainly never going to be a time where I think, oh, that's not how the character looks to me. I'm just, any illustration, I'm willing to get on board with what they've done. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know if that competition would be annoying if people do have fixed ideas themselves. I mean, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm very imaginative as a reader and I will very quickly form a mental image of what someone looks like or, or what the setting is like, um, which is sometimes a good thing sometimes a bad thing because then sometimes I allow myself to go off on my own little adventure without actually reading closely enough <laughs> what the author has provided to me but um I think illustrations are a wonderful way of highlighting as well particular areas of text and making perhaps it more clear what moments of the text should be focused on so for example if you look at um at those sort of pocket 19th century classics that are quite common, the Collins classics, um, that are illustrated and they normally have about 10 or so plates in them. Mm. And they're sort of randomly interspersed within the, within the pages. And often like, I've got some Austins and Brontes in those editions and you'll be reading and then you'll just come across this random thing of, you know, when someone was going to the shop or something. And you think, like, of all the moments, would you, yes. is that important? <laughs> but then it makes you stop and think, and, and it's like, well, actually, is this more of a powerful encounter than perhaps I'd considered? Or <laughs> what what was it that the illustrator found powerful or interesting in that moment to want to draw it? And then looking at the at the faces and things. And I've done a bit of work, actually, on, on looking at different illustrations of different editions of Austin novels in the past. Mm. Um, just I did it for a, a class I can't remember why but I was looking at different ways in which people had interpreted characters and I found it really interesting actually to look at the 
similarities and differences between 19th century editions of novels. And this is a very geeky discussion, but um, it's interesting how often the same moments were illustrated, but then also the differences between the editions and the differences in the ways that characters were portrayed. And something I found quite interesting as well is how often illustrators just completely ignore what's in the book and, and, um, for, you know, obviously didn't talk and didn't talk to the author or if the author was alive or if the author was dead, there was no kind of anyone saying, oh, hang on a second, mm-hmm. that's not right. So you'll have characters, for example, Emma is, is clearly stated as, as having had fair hair. And in many illustrations of Emma, she's, she's brown haired. Um, and things like that. So that's quite interesting to me. But also it's interesting how I'm going to get to my point in a second, <laughs> how for perhaps what a 19th century illustrator might have thought to be an interesting moment is perhaps not what we think is interesting now. And so you've also got that contextual interest of thinking, well, what was a it gives you an insight into what a reader of a particular time would have would have hooked onto compared to maybe what a 20th century reader or 21st century reader would have hooked on to if we think about a modern um illustration i've got a lovely illustration uh, illustrated edition of pride and prejudice i bought a few years ago by um alice patillo who's a contemporary illustrator and what the images that she has picked to illustrate are very much image images that wouldn't have occurred to a 19th century illustrator so for example she's really focused on those 19th century details that she's really illustrated um carriages and horses and and wrought iron gates and the architecture to kind of give us that sense of the setting because those things we don't see around us anymore so a lot of people might not actually know what a carriage looks like yeah whereas in the 19th century you wouldn't have needed to illustrate that for somebody because you know they know exactly what that looks like that's not interesting to them what's interesting to them is the emotional moments between the characters whereas perhaps now we're more interested in the setting and reconstructing that world that to us is vanished and that we can't imagine as easily. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I don't know a huge amount about the illustration process in the past, uh, but I would imagine probably illustrators weren't given a completely free reign, particularly in earlier publishing. I would imagine there is a publisher saying, we need illustrations that will go every 30 pages, so pick some... I didn't even pick something from there. Well, but. there was um, there were I did I did an essay on this actually for my masters, and there there was quite a lot of of freedom for some. But Charles okay. Dick, Charles Dickens was notorious. Um, I remember for, hearing about that. Yeah, <laughs> for the stuff that was produced during his lifetime, he had the final say on everything. He dictated what he wanted. Um, he drove his poor illustrator to distraction. Um, interestingly enough, his illustrator lived uh, literally around the corner from my flat. I first, um, uh, yeah, I walked past Crackwick. Crookshank, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, he, there's reports of him being like, absolutely, I'm not going to do any more work for this man. <laughs> um, because Charles Dickens would, would be like, no, I want it like this, I want it like that. I mean, and it got to the point where he was kind of like, you know, just illustrate it yourself if you're going to be like this. <laughs> um, so he really didn't have any freedom. He had to do it exactly as, as Charles Dickens wanted it. Whereas other illustrators in the 19th century, particularly if the author was dead, um, had a lot of freedom to illustrate what they wanted and um, to take what they thought was important from the text, which, again, is what makes them such interesting documents to analyse. And illustration is actually an area of academic um, analysis that is, is quite thin on the ground. Not that many people are interested in it. So it's um, quite open to looking into more deeply, I think, because 
a lot of people are they're, they're overlooked really aren't they people think oh well it's just an addition to the text i don't need to worry about it but there's a lot in them that can be explored i think yeah particularly the people who weren't the big names coming I mean, crookshanks mm-hmm. millions of fessies have been written yeah. about him but but uh, yeah other people certainly not um i went to a really interesting talk about illustration that the folio society put on probably five years ago or so um and there was a guy talking i think he'd illustrated a new edition of pinocchio and just talking about how carefully he like reads us read the book three times and then i you know think about which section to go for and all that so it does seem to be extremely thorough and i imagine at the other end of the scale there's people who just sort of churn them out but um but it was <laughs> i mean looking at some of the enid blyton ones you know so they didn't seem to be a lot of thought to got into some of those i had to rain on your childhood memories <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, a while ago, I did a, um, a blog post that I think I've now taken down because it was breaching copyright, but uh, looking at different illustrations of Alice in, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Yeah. There's so, been so many wonderful, rich um, and interesting takes on that. I think, you know, it's such an unusual and interesting book that, of course, there's a lot of scope for a, for an illustrator. And whilst um, Tennille is you know the one that everyone thinks of, you know, Alice in her, with her Alice band and the blue dress and all that sort of thing, um, although I imagine it was black and white when it was done, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. th- there's that sort of archetype, but there's the two I remember most as Tevi Janssen illustrated it. I've got a copy with her illustrations in. Oh, it's uh, a Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And my favourite illustrations uh, to the book are were done by Salvador Dali. So you can only imagine what sort of craziness comes together well, when Salvador right. Dali and, and Lewis yeah. Carroll unite. But then there's some people, I was thinking, trying to think which books I would not be able to separate from the illustrations, and Winnie the Pooh is just not Winnie the Pooh without E.H. Shepard's illustrations in my mind, which is one of the reasons that I can't stand anything that the Disney has done with Winnie the Pooh, because why ruin those, those excellent illustrations? Yes. Um, it just brings such a wonderful level, and uh, your new level to it, and the one that sticks in my mind is the, I think it's the first story where... Um, who is floating up in a balloon trying to get the the uh the honey oh, from yes. the bees and Chris Robin shoots the balloon to to get him to come down um and in the illustration which isn't mentioned in the text you see that Chris Robin's holding a a cork pop gun there's like a little cork hanging yes. out of the gun which gives that extra dimension where he show, shows you that it's all make believe and that obviously he's not really shooting guns um and I don't know if that was something he decided in discussion with Amel or if that was his own Sort of separate initiative, but um, that's the sort of thing that I I love, and I can't think of many examples of that even in Winnie the Pooh. But um, when the illustration gives you that extra sort of sly take on what's going on, it's really fun. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I I love those kind of little moments where the illustrator is has just really captured a moment or added a little something that that makes you giggle or makes you kind of see something more in a character i think um children's books are wonderful for that when you know there's a little person peeking out from behind a, a chair or someone's up, like i love the illustrations to as i say the enid blyton books that i grew up reading and um i remember just absolutely spending ages just rereading and rereading and a lot of what i thought the characters looked like came from those illustrations um and i always found it quite disappointing pointing actually that the original harry potter books weren't illustrated because i would have really liked that there's some beautiful illustrated editions of those now that i've bought mm-hmm. from my nephews sadly they don't like reading harry potter so 
Um, oh. I, I hope to steal those back actually. For sure. Um, yeah. yeah. They, they, I mean, they won't mind. Um, and there's some, be- like, those are really beautiful. I think they're, um, they're, they were originally, they're done as watercolors and they just look brilliant. Um, I'm just trying to think of any adult books that I've got the illustrations. There's some lovely books well, I've got oh, actually of, of, so no, you go first. You've probably got no, some I was just going to say, the, the one that came to my mind that we have both read recently with uh, adult book with illustrations was Little by Edward Carey. Oh, yes, of course. His, his own wonderful illustrations. Yeah. Not, not a huge number, but a plenty. And he also illustrated Alva and Alva. He did, yes. Well, in yeah. fact, um, that was, he made, sculptures that are yes. photographed in it yeah um yeah no that's wonderful and another way to really enrich the text i think um because you're seeing the objects that are being described i think um there are also some lovely books in the 1930s that were used woodcuts a lot um which are beautiful oh, yes, I love a woodcut, yes. i've got a claire layton um book mm-hmm. of the country calendar or the country year or something that's got beautiful woodcuts in it that just bring it to life and their work of arts in in their own right and it's i spend just as much time poring over the image as i do over the words because that again brings a whole new dimension to the story um and i think there's um the Air by Vita Sackville West had lovely woodcuts in it as well that I really enjoyed. Oh, yes, the chapter heading ones, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, it's, but for me, like, it's it's quite rare now to find books with any type of, of illustration in it. There might be, you know, the first letter of the first word of the first chapter might be pretty or something, but, and you've obviously most of the time you've got a pictorial dust jacket but a lot of the mm. time even dust jackets now don't have images on it it's just the font and you know some color thing um there's not really as much if you look in the, i mean I, that's why i love collecting older editions of books because the i think the 1930s 40s 50s you get the most amazing pictorial dust jackets um even if the book itself is illustrated you've got a really lovely image on the front that can again capture a place or, or a character and i feel like we've lost a lot of that yeah, I think maybe an area in which the chapter heading illustrations and other illustrations is still happening is maybe nature writing. Oh, yeah. You still, still see a lot of it um, in those sorts of books. But you're right, even the chapter heading things, that all, all the time in novels between, say, the 30s and the 60s, there'd be a little illustration at the head of a chapter. Rex Whistler more or less made his living from them, it seems. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that seems to have died out maybe for financial reasons maybe because it felt a bit dated at one point but i think it is financial reasons i think too many books are are, are produced these days and they're produced in huge quantities and yes although sorry no go ahead (laughs) i keep interrupting you i'm so sorry rachel Uh, i'm used to it (laughs) after 76 episodes i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) um uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, the rise of ebooks did seem to lead, at least for a while, to just higher quality production books. Mm. And I was w- hoping that might be one of the th- sort of things that came in more. And while books seem to have nicer quality paper and quality, um, even yeah, the dust jackets are often very beautiful, and the design seems to have gone in, in that side. It doesn't seem to have been reflected in internal illustrations, particularly for fiction. Mm. Um Something like Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day, the illustrations in that, wonderful. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, help elevate it. Um, and also help set the tone for the book, I, I think, as well. No, absolutely. Uh, whereas, yeah, I think there still is an imp- impression that it's, um, if it's in a novel now, that it, I don't know, that it's sort of 
makes it more childish. Because, I mean, graphic novels have successfully got away from that, I think. There is very much a market for graphic novels now, but the sort of half and half of text and illustrations, that, that as far as I'm aware, hasn't really developed in the way that it could. No. Um, Which is a shame, I think, because there's, there's so much that you get from illustrations. And I think it also a beautiful, well-produced book that's got a gorgeous dust jacket, that's got lovely images, not necessarily on, on all the pages, but, you know, a few plates or a few pictures somewhere in there. It, it makes it more than just a book on a shelf. It makes it something that's beautiful to look at, beautiful to and beautiful to go back to again and again. And we're losing that in that kind of mass-produced, do it as cheaply as you can with terrible paper. Half the time, the spine's not glued properly. I mean, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you're left with something that looks completely tatty after you've read it. And, you know, that's why I don't buy paperbacks, because they just fall apart and there's nothing beautiful about them. And if you buy those, you know, beautiful, there are, it is possible to buy lovely illustrated hardbacks but they're prohibitively expensive for a lot of people you know like folio editions cost a fortune well i was going to mention folio because the one people i mean again but the one the one publisher that always gets illustrations in and often really well is folio and secondhand they're very affordable mm. but sometimes i did read miss i think it was mr norris changes trains by christopher isherwood where they had terrible illustrations so, hey. uh, that woman beryl something who always does those very sort of plump people I can't remember, but yeah. um, completely the wrong, the wrong tone, and just sort of looked a bit like seaside postcards rather than. Oh, I wonder who you mean. Yeah. I can't yeah. think of her last name, but yes, I can see exactly Such what you mean. Such a strange choice, and it might not be that novel, but whichever it was, certainly a folio novel of some sort where it just did not make any sense for them to have that style. It was quite off-putting. Hmm. Yeah, that's, and I think that's interesting as well. Where um, folio are, are really trying to revive the art of illustration but again if you choose the wrong author uh, sorry the wrong illustrator um, or you know what obviously people perceive to be the wrong illustrator and, and you do get the tone wrong then it can ruin the experience so I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a gamble sometimes you don't always know that you're going to get what you want and I do think there are a lot of, of, of books from the 50s in particular where um, it's a little bit experimental and it doesn't quite work. Uh, people started taking hallucinogenic drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think it's a shame. You occasionally see people disparage artists when they say, oh, they look more like an illustrator, um, as though that made them worse art, which I think is... Uh, I don't understand where that has come from, where the idea that illustrating something is worse than creating art, or is not in itself no, creating I mean, art. No, I think illustration is an incredibly uh, difficult job, and I... You know, I have two things that I can't do. Um, just two. Just two that I categorically <laughs> can't do with no amount of practice. Number one is any type of art, um, drawing, painting, can't mm. do it. Uh, number two, dancing. Ah. Yeah. Um, well, got, got no I'm sense brilliant that. at both of these. Wow. <laughs> That's not true. I'm not bad at art. I'm very bad at dancing. Well, you know. I'm certainly not good enough at art to be an illustrator. No. It's just, I, I have a huge amount of respect for artistic people because I have all sorts of images in my mind that I just cannot put onto paper. It's a tragedy, but there we are. Oh, uh, so sorry. Okay. Well, I think I'm right in saying that we're probably both going to say yes to illustration. That's only what I'm going to say. Mm, absolutely. I think, why not? And it's, 
it's a wonderful way to bring a novel to life. And I wish that more people, um, you know, would, well, more publishers would get behind it. It's not just for children. Preach. Now, before we get into the second half, you may remember last time we started a new feature where we answer or give advice or answer reader questions. Oh, I didn't remember, but yes, I remember now you mentioned <laughs> Yes, you did it. Um, I also realised that I, did, I sort of didn't really give you a chance to say why you thought that Excellent Women was a good place to start with Barbara Pym. So if you'd like to oh. say, say that now, because I was listening back while I was editing and thinking, Simon, you did not give Rachel a chance to explain. See, this is just, this is just my life. You. <laughs> cutting always, me off <laughs> cutting you off but i apologize so swings and roundabouts i don't yeah, know yeah it's fine but now's your um, chance take center stage okay well i mean for me having read most of barbara pym's books now not all because i can't bear to finish so i have kept a couple <laughs> back um i would say it's probably the most typical of her books and also for me the most funny um, I started with Jane and Prudence, didn't kind of get it. And I think when I read it again, after having read Excellent Women, I did get it. Excellent Women is also the first one I get. My mum is my litmus test for things like this. Um, she's quite fussy. It takes her a while to get into <laughs> books. Um, and she, I gave her Excellent Women and she absolutely loved it straight away. And she's also read all of the Barbara Pins. In fact, we both, she's, Always, when she goes to the charity shop to look at books, she'll always snap one up, and then I'll be like, "Oh, Mum, we've already got that one." Um, so <laughs> we read them together, and she's she really loved that, and that was her starting point. So I think it's a good break-in point. That's what I would say. If 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 you don't like excellent women, you won't like Barbara Pym. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't like excellent women. I do like Barbara Pym, but yes. <laughs> I think you're unusual. <laughs> I'm unusual. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that you've now had space to, to, to say that. Okay, thank um, you so much for giving me the space. You are welcome. Um, Bullied and, and abused, everyone. <laughs> yes, do send help to Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Poor, vulnerable person that she is. <laughs> uh, and you may remember, um, Rachel won't, but the reader, listener may remember that <laughs> we had two questions last time and we're delaying one till this time, which was from Elizabeth, who asked um, what do we do when we're in a reading slump How, what, what do we, what books help us get out of a reading slump well that's a good question mm. very good question um thankfully that doesn't happen to me very often but when it does i go back to a murder mystery mm. yes any any in particular or just any um i go to um agatha christie or um, one of the British crime classics. Mm. It just, I need, if I'm in that kind of slump, it's normally because I've read a lot of quite demanding novels quite close together or very long ones close together. And I've got a bit of fatigue from having, you know, having to stick with the same story for three weeks, four weeks. And what I want is something quick, something light, something fun, something that I don't have to get emotionally involved with. Um, and murder mysteries just tick that box for me. And I, that's why I prefer the, the golden age of, of crime because you don't have that psychological element to it. You're not going to get involved with the characters. You're not going to feel sad when someone gets murdered. You know, you're not encouraged to feel that <laughs> when you read those novels. Yeah. Um, 
so it, it just allows me to switch my brain off and just enjoy myself and I can read it probably in a day or two and it's it's just a good kind of for like pressing the restart button on my brain as it were yes I have a very well, almost identical answer in fact so I, I always call it reader's block and I've thankfully not had it for a while but I've had it a few times where I just for about you know, three or four weeks, I don't feel like I'm able to read anything. And I just pick oh. up books and think, how do people read books? They're so long. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many words. And it's horrible because so much of what I think of my identity is as a reader. Mm. Um, and Agatha Christie is, is my is my way out. And it's not even detective novels. It has to be Agatha Christie. <laughs> There's something in the paciness of the way she writes and the satisfactoriness, satisfyingness, satisfaction, satisfaction of... Um, of her plots and solutions that that somehow helps but then then i get in a in a bit where i can only read agatha christie so i'll read you know five or six over a fortnight and then then i'm ready for something else but um i'm running out of agatha christie's so let's hope it doesn't happen too often oh. well actually i've, I've well. got a question for you about agatha christie that might help people listening oh yes go for it um I only realised very recently that Agatha Christie was still writing up into the the 60s and 70s. Mm. Are these later novels worth reading, in your opinion? Right. So the last couple published, Curtain and Sleeping Murder, are good because she wrote them much earlier. Right. Uh, She sort of, there was the final Poirot and the final Miss Marple and she wanted them saved to, to publish later. Um, and she was good right through the sort of 50s, 60s, maybe most some of the 60s. The last six or so of her books before she died are not good. Right. <laughs> do not do not go right to the end. I mean, something like Elephants Can Remember is terrible. Um, there's some others that I've not read from that time that have a really bad reputation. Shame. So, yes. So, which, you know, there's still plenty of ones that are very good. And there are, as I say, some that are quite late in her career that are good. But yes, just look, if you're looking at the bibliography, stop somewhere towards the last column, <laughs> I think, probably. Right. Thanks for that advice. Because yeah, I mean, it's, okay. I often see them in secondhand bookshops and think, oh, and then I keep thinking, I must ask Simon whether that one's worth getting. <laughs> yes, message me anytime and I will offer <laughs> my advice. And if you have a question or advice or anything you'd like to ask us, just email teaorbooks at gmail.com, which nobody has yet done, <laughs> but please do. <laughs> looking forward to hearing from you um and if it's going to be a regular segment we need some questions yes we do (laughs) otherwise i'll start making them up (laughs) Um, they'll never know the difference we'll just call the person karen (laughs) (laughs) everyone will believe it (laughs) now if a karen does email it look like we've made it up (laughs) the chances are of a karen emailing are very high um right second half which novel would you like to introduce us to? Can I do Mrs. Hargraves? Because that's the one I... Miss Hargraves, sorry. Miss Hargraves. Um, the yeah. one I've just read, because um, I will be better at... Be fresher on that. You certainly can. Um, do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. You go first. Okay. So Miss Boston and Miss Hargraves by Rachel Malik came out a couple of years ago, I think. Mm. And Rachel read it then and um, raved about it. Uh, it is... Um, well, the first part of it is set during the Second World War where Miss Boston, um, Elsie Boston, it l- runs a farm in, and she runs it on her own and she needs some help from a land girl. Renee Hargreaves turns up as said land girl. 
Um, they're both a bit shy and uncertain of each other at first, but form a close relationship, close, close friendship, question mark, um, and you know, discover all sorts of differences about their lives. Um, the novel moves on several decades, and I will not say anything much more now, and possibly not at all, but <laughs> depending on how much it counts as a spoiler, but they become embroiled in something of a scandal later in life. Very good. Um, so Miss Hargraves um, is a completely different kettle of fish. Um, it's written in the 30s and set in the 30s. 30s, right? Uh, it's published in 1940, but really, yeah, I'm sure it's written in the 30s. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is about uh, a, I can't remember anyone's names. Norman. Norman, who, and his friend Henry, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Who are young lads about town um as <laughs> as as lad as laddish as well to do um organists, organists <laughs> can be who live in small cathedral towns um and they're on a holiday in Ireland and they are in a, a very miserable sounding village and they go to a church um in the rain and Norman has a real sense that they shouldn't go inside and it's it's a weird thing um, but they do, and they end up talking to the, the creepy um, sexton, or whatever his job is, to open the door. And they make up, Norman makes up uh, a woman, Miss Hargraves, who is related to somehow to the old rector of the church that the sexton is telling them about. And um, the boys think that this is hilarious. They carry on joking about it all the way home, to the point where Henry says to Norman, you ought to write a letter to um miss hargreaves they've made up where she lives um so he's like yeah go on then i will so he writes a letter to her inviting her to come and stay and lo and behold he receives a letter back um from miss hargreaves herself saying that yes she will be delighted to come and before he knows it this old very old lady um who fits all of the description of what he has said that she is turns up knowing exactly who he is and managing to um, foist her way into his life and that of the lives of those around him. No one will believe that he's made her up and doesn't know her. And there are all sorts of embarrassing and complicated um, consequences. And then he has to sort of try and find a way to put Miss Miss Hargraves back in her, her box of imagination. But whether he can bear to do it or not is a different matter. There you go. And now, Rachel... I am dying to know what you think of my favourite novel. Yes, yeah, so Simon has been trying to make me read this book for <laughs> probably as many years as we've known each other, which, yes, is, yeah. which is actually probably about a decade now. Which it is, it is. Amazing. And I, had, I had to finally just buy one and send it to you. <laughs> I was like, I'll read it, but you've got to send me a copy. Um, and I've been, I, I don't know why I didn't want to read it. I think, I don't, you just made it sound weird. <laughs> and you know how Simon loves his fantastic 30s books and mm. I mean and I didn't like the love child that you made me read before which was kind of a similar vein um, but then I did it's like Lolly Willows so I was kind of kept putting you off putting you off and I thought okay finally this time I'll read it and I had very low expectations <laughs> I will admit um, I was prepared to hate it it's also it's 300 pages as well and I was like this is a commitment Simon um, I mean, that's not that long of a... Well, it is if you're not going to enjoy it. But <laughs> I was actually, 
and I'm annoyed at saying this, and I'm not going to hear the end of it, but I actually loved it. Yes! I'm so pleased! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, this is, this is my favourite podcast moment ever. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was, the way you were leading up to that, I was so sad, and it was going to go the other way. No, I was so annoyed while I was reading it. I was like, oh, this is actually really good. Because um, you it's, said you tried it before, and I think the first few pages are a bit not the yeah. same, a bit totally different from the rest. Yeah, I couldn't get into it, I don't think, before. But no, I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's bizarre and wacky, um, but the characters are brilliant. The writing's fantastic. I found it hilarious. I No, I absolutely loved it. Whipped through it. Oh, I'm so pleased, Rachel. Oh my gosh, you are never going to hear the end of this. No, I'm not. Anytime I ever recommend you a book, <laughs> like, remember Miss Hargraves. <laughs> I've made a rod for my own back. I thought, should I pretend to have hated it? And I was like, no, I can't do that to him. It's wicked. Uh, so, I mean, we must also talk about, I'm not just going to completely ignore Rachel Malik's book, because that would be mean. I mean, I just want to do a whole hour devoted to Miss Hargraves. I know you do. can't do that. But, I mean, before we move on, I just want to say, my favourite character, and I'd be interested to know what you think of him, is Norman's dad, the books. Oh, I thought that you would like him. <laughs> yes. That's what He's... you're going to become when you're old. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> um, so yes, I first read it in 2003, I think. About then, my piano teacher recommended it to me. Um, um, I had no idea then that it was whether or not it was a well-known book. She lent me the old Penguin edition that she had. Uh, and I was swept away immediately. I loved it. I, so, I think it's so funny. It's also one of those books that combines comedy and um, darkness really well. I think it gets steadily more, not menacing, but um, unsettling maybe. There's, there's a power struggle that develops between him and Miss Hargraves. Um, and I find, I won't say what the ending is, but I find that extremely emotional as well each time I read it. And I've read it maybe 10 times. Um, yeah, I think she, he's created this one, Miss Hargraves is this wonderful character. She's very eccentric. She's quite domineering. She's got a hip bath and a cockatoo and a harp, all these bizarre things. And she's larger than life. And, um, he's very, he's, he's very good at making this character who just bursts onto the scene larger than life and yet develops realistically after that. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and yes, really, I find it really moving as well as really funny. Um, and it's such a shame that every other book that Frank Baker wrote is terrible. Oh, really? I was I was going to ask you that. Terrible is probably not not fair, but I've read three or four of his other novels, and I've got a few more, but they've just been so disappointing after oh, this one. That, that's um, a shame. Yeah, I almost don't want to keep reading the other ones in case they get even worse. I, um, Before I Go Hence was all right, which is sort of a time slip novel. Um but yeah, otherwise, there's just sort of everything else you wrote is fairly uninspired. It seems. Yeah, how unfortunate! Because I was, I was going to ask you, you know, should I bother? Because I mean, I had a look online, and they're not exactly cheap or easy to get yeah, hold of. Yeah. So. Yeah, the, his autobiography I did enjoy. That's quite moving. Um, he sort of basically just writes about I think it's eight different people that he knew well, oh. or maybe not even that well, just eight people who've affected his life in some way. Um, and that was good. But yeah, I shouldn't, I wouldn't bother with any of the other novels, to be honest. Okay. Wow, but a yeah, one-hit we'll one wonder. Yeah, and, it, and yeah, he he got rather sick of that, I think, in his life. But um, write better books, Frank. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, Miss Boston and Miss Har- Hargreaves. Um, how did you come across it? Well, um, interestingly, uh, to connect back to illustration, I was originally 
attracted to it by its cover, which is beautiful. Um, the dust jacket is this kind of almost Ravidiusy inspired 1950s um, style illustration of the countryside. And I just thought, oh, what a pretty book. And I went over and picked it up and I read the description. And I thought, oh, that sounds exactly the kind of book I would like. So I took a chance and bought it. Um, and I was really impressed, actually. I think I'd gone through a phase of reading, um, trying to read a few more contemporary novels and just been disappointed by how rubbish they were, you know, overwritten and all that kind of every line's a simile, which I can't stand. And I thought, well, you know, I read the first few pages and thought, at least this woman can write. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to give it a try. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I thought the characters were so interesting. It was and a really interesting um, period of time as well. That's not often often written about. Where you've got that war, but on the home front through the eyes of women, and then going forward to. I mean, it's fifties, isn't it? That is the second part of the book. Is I think even later, maybe sixties, maybe. And you know, again, you don't really come across novels very much written in that time, and where you still see the legacy of the war, and it's all very drab and horrible. Um, and I just found it absolutely fascinating. Then, then when I read some more about it and discovered that it was the the true story of, of the author's grandmother, I found it even more wonderful because I just thought, wow, you know, I can't believe this actually happened. Um, I can't say too much about that involves yeah. the, the twist, <laughs> which would be a shame because there is a wonderful twist in the middle. But I just I found the characters just so well drawn and so um emotionally moving I could really I felt like I really got to know them as as people and I cared about them and and I found the the growing trust between these two women who were both damaged in their own ways um and that bond that grew between them in their vulnerability I just found really powerful that she's Rachel Manick managed to to really draw out that the soul, I think, of both of those people and, and, and draw them so realistically and, and draw a relationship and the slow development of a relationship so realistically. Cause it's not as if these two women come together and are instantly best friends. It takes them a long time to trust each other and get to know each other. And I think she does that so well. Um, and she also portrays the local community so well. You get a real sense. I mean, certainly for me, I, I felt like I, I really understood and I could imagine the surroundings and the local people and I don't know whether it was the same for you. I know you find it hard to imagine things, but. Yeah. And I think I find it more, I find it hard to imagine things visually, but I think right. things like this, you do, I, I've certainly, you know, other bits of, of reading, I use a lot of imagination so that, you know, the community feels certainly. Mm. Um, and definitely I agree with you. Um, the way she draws their slow, coming together their sort of reluctance or you know awkwardness at first mm. um and and how they become friends uh really uh, yeah i particularly love the beginning of the book where it is awkward and, and gets less awkward mm. yeah i really really like the beginning as you say she's a good she's a good writer these are interesting characters um i think the things that i liked less about it were or maybe only one thing really is um because it is based on a true story it means she follows the true story, which leads to this bizarre section in the middle where there's this long gap of a decade where they, she says a few things that they're doing, the place, few places they've been. And as, at the time, when I, was, I didn't realise it was based on a true story until after I finished, and at the time I was thinking, this doesn't make any sense structurally. Why have we got this enormous gap before the action starts again? And that's one of those things where 
I don't know how you could have avoided that since it's based on a true story, but um, yeah, and it just it seemed to me to put the structure of the novel a bit off. So you've got this quite quite focused bit at the beginning and a focused bit at the end, and and this loop, this link between the two that um, didn't really feel like it could bear the weight of that longer passage of time to me. I don't know if that bothered you at all, or if not. not. No, it didn't actually. I I found it a really interesting structure, and I also thought it was. It was a sort of commentary as well on on how much that we actually she actually the author knows about what really happened and there's that sense of it being a family history and lots of things never actually being shared or told so that gap is kind of also in some ways illustrative of, of the gap of of memory or the gap of history and that sense of not wanting things to be brought to the light. Yeah, I think I'd have been all right if it was in it, just an informational gap. I think it's just because it's. You're, I was reading it and thinking, why, why, are the, why is there ten years here? Why are they, why are they briefly staying in these different places? Um, why are we hearing about them and then they move on? I don't know. So I, I think I'd have preferred it. I mean, because of the big twist, you need the whole second section. But I just, I was so enjoying the world of them living on this farm together in this community. I'd have quite liked if it was just that. Oh right, um, yeah. Just that world. No, I see so, what you mean. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I quite said, liked that, it. The, the end of the novel I also loved, so, um, I, and everything that happens around that that we can't really talk about, I think, was done really interestingly yeah. and well. Um, maybe I just wanted to write two different novels. That could have been a sequel. <laughs> yeah, like, I remember think those people on the farm? Yeah, it's quite interesting because it is a novel. It is very much a novel of two halves, and I think that's what makes it quite unique. For, for me, I, I really liked that because I, I loved the fact that I felt like I was reading kind of two different stories and I thought it's also really interesting how quickly someone's life can change um and it kind of kept me interested I suppose because you had that I think I would have been bored if the whole novel had just been them pottering around on the farm maybe hmm um oh, I was going to say related to that I don't remember I did this is not her fault it's certainly my fault I just could not remember which one of them was which and which first name went with which surname so I was constantly having to look at the back to me which one's Rene is that Boston or Hargreaves um and I don't know why I found that so difficult but I did Simon you're so difficult I know, I, know. I, just, I don't know what I don't know what I expect <laughs> just no. them to have names like alliterative names so I can remember which one's which nah. <laughs> I just thought you know it, it was also such a unique story, really, and one that definitely deserved to be told. Um, yeah, I can definitely, I can see that for sure. You know, and what a gift for an author to have family history like that. Well, quite. Yeah. Yes. And um, I have to say, Rachel Malik is a lovely person. I've I've chatted with her over Twitter a few times, and um, she's really lovely and is very um, happy to to talk to readers and and oh, to share nice. more. And excitingly, she is working on her second novel, so I'm, I can't wait to see what she does next because I'm, I'm I think she's brilliant and presumably this one is not based on family history or does she have more skeletons in the in the closet I, d- I don't know I don't know she um she hasn't said anything about what it's what it's going to be yet so I wait with bated breath there was that one bit moving to the second section where they they have they get involved in the lives of Ernest and Bertha and I couldn't I had no idea who Ernest and Bertha were and I texted you saying who's Bertha and you said I don't know 
<laughs> I spent much of the second section being like, who are these people? <laughs> because I had not paid close enough attention in the first half. Uh, this says a um, lot about you as a reader, yes, your attention. Absolutely, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bit of a gap in my reading as well. Because, I mean, this is not a fault of, of Rachel Mannix at all, because it's very clear who they are. <laughs> I just, um, yeah, I'd forgotten. This is because I read too many books at once as well. Mm. I kept thinking, why, why are they here? Who are these people? <laughs> I'm glad well, you paid as much attention to my recommendation <laughs> as I did to yours. <laughs> did my best. I mean, I, I didn't do my best. No. Um, but I did very much enjoy it. But I want to hear more about what you like about Miss Hargreaves. Look at you, bless. How excited you are. <laughs> I'm so um, like a little puppy. Um, so I, I actually really loved, um, I loved ha- Henry, his best friend. I found him oh, hilarious. He's great. Um, he's, they're always down the pub. Um, and yes. always taking the mickey out of each other. I love Norman. I loved how useless he was. Um, and also how he, he was kind of torn between loving Miss Hargraves and, and hating her and, and quite mm, kind of sense mm. of being destroyed by his own creation, a bit Frankenstein-esque. Um, but I, I just, I loved Miss Hargraves. I loved who she became when she becomes, you know, Lady Hargraves and she, she is, as you say, like she, she definitely develops realistically as a character mm. and she evolves over the course of the novel. And, and rather than just being this static, um, imaginary kind of cardboard cutout, she is very much a person in her own right. And you're right. The ending is actually really moving. Um, and when that sense that she knows that she's not real and it's just really interesting, um, as a whole concept, the whole novel shouldn't work, but it does. Um, I don't know why it works. Um, and it should be something that's completely unbelievable and ridiculous, but somehow the characters are like Miss Hargraves never feels like she's not real. Yeah. I think if an author starts with enough confidence in, in showing you what the story is about, then however absurd it is, somehow you just get on board and yeah. I think it's if they try and over-explain or if they try and find too many excuses or try and rationalise too much, that's when you sort of see the start to see the holes. Whereas, he, yeah, Frank Baker doesn't do that. It's like, this is what's happening. He doesn't try to explain why or how it's happened. It's just, it's there. Yeah. Can you think, and I cannot, of any connections at all between these novels, other than the fact they're both set at the same time, more or less? Um, well, they've both got that small community setting. That's true. That is true. And, you know, they both look at friendships between people that wouldn't ordinarily have come together. Yes. And in fact, they both um, look at, hmm, how can I put this without spoiling too much, the limits of what you can do to another person once they become a nuisance to you. Yes. Yes. Very true. Yes. (laughs) But in quite different ways. Actually, having said that, maybe not that maybe not that different because there's quite a there's quite a lot of moral weight to both of them. No, um, not not in a heavy way. Particularly, yeah, it's interesting how Miss Hargreaves turns this very light thing into quite a, a moral question towards the end. Mm. I mean, I I have to say, I I was quite surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Um, I'm surprised how much you enjoyed yeah. it. I'm so, yeah, so pleased. <laughs> and, I, and I think a lot of that was due to the the humour of the book. But I think I, I suppose what put me off initially was I, I I thought I would find it quite hard to suspend my disbelief, hmm. and that was never a problem. And I I don't know why it wasn't, but it just I just sort of accepted it. And um, 
I just, yeah, I just found it charming. And I'm really disappointed that his other books aren't any good because I thought, oh, I found another author. But Yeah, I mean, there, there's plenty that I've not read, so may, maybe there's some more gold out there. But, yeah, the ones, the ones I've read are just often quite dull. <laughs> and then there's, yeah, I'm trying to think, because there's quite a few that have fantastical elements to them in a, sort of in a similar way, but either just, I mean, and before I go hence, the time slip just comes and goes there's another one, mr allenby loses the way where it's overly rationalized um yeah i don't know it's a shame it just seems that lightning did strike only once uh and something i wish i could see which i don't th- don't think is available is the tv version where margaret rutherford played her how oh, wonderful would that gosh. be and that's not online uh, anywhere it's not online i i once emailed the british film what are they called? Institute. Um, asking if there was a copy any, anywhere. Which they said there was not in their archives, so it might be forever gone. But how wonderful would that be? Well, I'm sure that it must be somewhere. Someone will have it somewhere. You'd think, wouldn't you? Because yes, when was it? Late sixties, maybe we made with her. Have um, you Have I'm... you tried the VNA? No, do they have a film archive? They do. Mm. Because that you know they no. used to have the theatre and performance gallery, and then that got taken over by them and they've got all of their archives ah oh i have to try that yeah um, and my dream would be to see maggie smith play her oh yes she yes she would be perfect but, that would be great yeah. so why do you love it so much why has it captured your imagination for so long that's a good question i think um maybe because it was one of the first books in that genre that i read um which is as, as you said a genre that i love and what i wrote my phd on um, I think it is, I find it so funny, but I think it is that combination of humour and pathos that I, that I love so much and that it is sustained so believably and so, um, and, and like the, the energy for me doesn't ever let up and there's always, whenever you think, oh, we've had everything that might happen, there's like another twist or another little d- way of exploring it. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, also the cathedral life, that's, I've, I've not mm-hmm. grown up in a cathedral um, community, but it's not that different to vicarage and church life, which is, I'm familiar with. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if, if I'd read it at this age for the first time after I've read many other similar, not similar books, but books from that genre, whether it would have had less of an impact on me. Um, I don't know, but it just seems to bring together the the best parts of all the things I like of books from that period into this one wonderful whole. <laughs> First love. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah, committed mm. for life. <laughs> oh, why not? You know, if you love it and it calls to you, then and it is a wonderful book. It's funny. You know, it's 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 you know it's joyful as well. And in these yeah. times, that's what we need, isn't it? I would describe it as witty, joyful, and moving, but above all, an extraordinary work of the imagination, which, if you look at the back of the, <laughs> of the book, is what I've been quoted as saying on it. Absolutely famous. There we are. <laughs> because, yes, it came back into print when I recommended it to Bloomsbury back in 2002, well, 2009 or something. Well, what a claim to fame. It was such an exciting day for me. Because <laughs> I've been foisting it on many people. Whenever I found a coffee before that, I'd buy it to give to someone. And after that, I could just tell people to go and buy it in a shop. Now, do you have a hardcover with a dust jacket? See, I don't have anything from the first printing, which I would love. I have um, the Penguin version. I have a 1970s reprint that had extra poetry published in the back. I obviously have the Bloomsbury one. I have Tartarus Press in a lovely limited edition version. But first edition, or anything with a dust jacket... Not yet in my collection. 
Do you know what the dust jacket looks like? Yes. Yeah. What does it look like? Um, and I say that I've seen it. It's very dark, and it's got a couple. It not can't be an umbrella. Hmm. I I said yes confidently, and now I can't remember. It's not, but it's not the best um, dust jacket. Oh right. I was just intrigued to know what it looked like. Yeah, I will quickly Google it. Let's see if I can describe it. Um, keep talking about one of the books. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I think it's um, I think it's the kind of book that most people who who like what we read will probably enjoy. I would go as far to say that. Oh, that, yeah. Um, I was completely wrong. I've misremembered what the cover looks like, and it is actually rather nice. Um, oh. <laughs> so it's got Miss Hargraves written in in lovely. Um, cursive font at the top and then you see a picture of her with, surrounded by her cockatoo and her uh, her dog and her harp and her lorgnette, is that how you say it? Yes, lorgnette. Yes. Um, and looking I think it's in a cathedral arch. So yes. Oh, oh yes, I've just lovely. had a look on aid books and if you would like to buy such a copy that will cost you £750. Which is a reason that I do not own it. <laughs> <laughs> One <laughs> day we might reason. come across it somewhere. <laughs> Yes, but um, not today, <laughs> not today. But it's nice to keep it, keep an eye out for something. You know, I've, I've, I need a fifth edition of it in my house. Of course you do. I had a very lucky find yesterday, actually, um, in the charity shop. Um, when I bought, you might remember, I really loved the shooting party by Isabel Colgate. Mm, I do, um, do remember, and I did not like it at all. And yes. It's such a shame. And I lent, yeah. I've lent the copy to my friend at work, and. Um, I thought, oh, well, if I see another one, then she can just keep it. And I saw it on the shelf, first edition. And then I opened it up, and it was signed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. And only three pounds. Oh, that's a win. Yeah. Because... Not quite as exciting as the first edition of Miss Hargraves, but, you know. No. Signed by Miss Hargraves herself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I shall keep um, an eye out for that, Simon. There's a little gift for you. Oh, my gosh. You would make me the happiest man. I know I would. So every time I you mean, go to second-hand bookshops and I think I've found something you'll like, you're always like, yeah, I've got it. <laughs> um, I do feel slightly apologetic to Rachel Malik that I've been neglecting her book in this discussion because I'm so excited about talking about Miss Hargre- Miss Hargraves. But um, I certainly did like your book a lot, Rachel, if you're listening. Uh, and I look forward to your next one. But ultimately and unsurprisingly, my choice of the two is Miss Hargraves because it would beat any other book we put it against. But I'm intrigued to know which one you'll choose, Rachel. Hmm. This is a hard decision because they're very different books. Yes. Um, but I think if I were, if you're going to hold a gun to my head, say, <laughs> which book would you like to read again? Oh, I think I would probably, I think I'd probably go for Miss Hargraves. Yes. <laughs> That's it. The podcast has ended now. We, <laughs> not, we don't need to do any more ever again. Episode 76 is the last one. The only reason I started it was to get Rachel to read Miss Hargraves. <laughs> uh, I'm delighted, as you can obviously tell. Yes. And um, look forward to you abusing this forever. Yeah, well, I'm not looking forward to that, but there we are. I'm literally never going to live this down. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but thank you for your honesty. Thank you for not pretending you hated it. Um, in the next episode, we might do something a bit different. Um, we might have a guest. Not sure exactly what's going to happen, but look out for that. Episode after that, we will be 
doing two of the new furrowed middlebrow uh reprints from from dean street press that we're um, rich and i are both big fans of the books that they choose to reprint there um and we chose uh beneath the visiting moon by romley cavan mm-hmm. and wine of honor by barbara beecham um which i think are the romley cavan is just in is in the middle of the Second World War, and the Beecham is just after, I think. But all of the nine new books they've reprinted are set during or just after the Second World War, and they're a really interesting selection. I'll put a link in in the notes because I recommend yeah. you go and see what they. They all have. sound great. It was hard for us to choose two, wasn't it? It was hard, and I've got got seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully, these two will be as good as they sound. Um, yeah, look forward to discussing those. And, you know, maybe we'll just throw Miss Hargrave in again as well. Why not? Mm. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com if you have anything you'd like us to do in our advice question e bit in the middle. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Oh, there you go. I've made your day, haven't I? <laughs>